we are, I mentioned this at the, at the uh, welcome, we're spending the summer talking about discipleship. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And if you were with us last week, if, if not, I'll, I'll rehearse it again for us. But we saw, how, we saw how Jesus calls us to follow him at great cost. Very difficult message, but a necessary one. Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And he says we must lose our lives for his sake, and only then will we find true life in him. It's a call to humility, to deny ourselves, to die to ourselves, ultimately. But in the end, it's also uh, the humility is that as we're dying to self, we don't make a big deal out of it. Jesus spoke about this in the Sermon on the Mount, that when you give, when you pray, don't go around blowing a trumpet, letting everybody know what you're doing for Christ. Don't draw attention to yourself. That's part of the denial of self, is we don't make a big deal out of what we do for Jesus because He's the hero, not me. And so we deny, we set aside, we die, we lose in order to follow Christ. If you weren't with us, we'll post our sermons on the internet. You can go back and listen to it. It's not as bad as it sounds. There's a lot of benefit to following Christ too. And we'll talk about that today. There's a clear teaching in the Scripture of cost. There's also a clear teaching of reward. The reward of discipleship. And because last week we focused so much on cost, this week I want us to see what Jesus says about the rewards that come from being His disciple. There's a God-given honor and distinction for those who take up their cross and follow Christ. That already might make you a little uncomfortable. It does me, okay? But we'll see what we mean, what Christ means as we go and hopefully make good sense of it together. Let's look at Matthew 19, okay? And if you're familiar with, there's a very famous story that precedes our scripture today. It's what we call the story of the rich young ruler, a man who, who possessed much wealth, he comes to Jesus wanting to know how he can achieve eternal life. And Jesus addresses this man's greatest idol. He cuts right to the heart. He says to him, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And of course, you know the story. The man turns and walks away from Jesus filled with sorrow because he simply could not, would not, part with his great wealth. That was one thing he simply wouldn't give up. And that sparks an interesting conversation at the end of Matthew 19, led by Peter. Peter's always saying perhaps what the other disciples are thinking, but they're not brash enough to do it. And so Peter says it out loud, Matthew 19, verse 27. Look at this question. Peter says to Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Unlike the rich young ruler, the disciples had left everything. Job, family, possessions, reputation. They left it all to follow Jesus. And so Peter, even if a little brash, he asks what perhaps to him is an obvious question. What will there be for us who have counted the cost and embraced you, followed you? Now, Jesus doesn't scold Peter for that question. He actually answers him. Look at verse 28. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, 
you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging or ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now let's take these promises in turn. The first promise in verse 28 It's an astounding promise that Jesus makes to the 12 disciples specifically that one day they, the 12, will sit upon 12 thrones and rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. Which means, in some sense, these men are going to share in Jesus' kingship. These men who were uneducated fishermen, hated tax collectors, these men who were lightly esteemed in the world's eyes will one day rule alongside Christ forever. That's an amazing promise. That's probably more than what Peter was bargaining for when he asked the question. But my focus for just a moment here, how could Jesus make such an audacious promise? To give them 12 thrones of their own to either side of his great and glorious throne. Well, that's, of course, the answer. How can Jesus make such a massive, huge, divine, eternal promise? It's because there is a day coming, he says it, when he will sit on his glorious throne. Above all rule and power and authority, everything and everyone will be subject to him in a time he calls the regeneration, which is a word that means the new beginning. Jesus is talking about his eternal kingdom right here. The new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. And the point is, this is a promise that only God can make. And it's a promise certainly that only God could keep. Y'all, when you, little old you and me, when we embrace the cost of following Jesus in this life, we are entrusting ourselves, both presently and eternally, to the very Son of God. Following Jesus is not casting your future into the wind and hoping for the best. He is God in the flesh. And therefore, when He makes a promise, we who trust Him are standing on the firmest foundation there is. And so what Jesus promises to the twelve, you take it to the bank. It is to come. But then He extends a promise beyond the twelve to you and me. Look in verse 29 again. He says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Now, we may not feel the weight of these words like some others do, some of our own brothers and sisters throughout history and even now around the world. For many people, y'all, what Jesus says here rings true very literally. There are people that when they trust and follow Jesus, that means for them being forsaken by those who are closest to them. It means being cast out. It means losing your home, your livelihood, your status, your reputation, perhaps. We've got uh, friends in, in Pakistan in a place called Karachi where 
Trusting and following Christ means you are pushed to the margins of society and you are considered like the dregs of the earth. There was a, a, an article written in the New York Times about a year ago uh, that spoke of uh, sewer cleaners, which was a job hired out in Karachi, and it said, only Christians need apply. They are forsaken for following Christ. Now, most of us don't know what that's like. But even if we don't experience what Jesus is saying, literally, we saw last week that following Jesus still requires a total reorientation of our priorities, our affections, our loves, our aspirations. That even if we don't lose everything for the sake of Christ, we treasure Christ such that everything is now losable. We treasure Him so much that He is the most precious thing in our life. And like Paul says in Philippians 3, we count all else to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. We gain Him even if it means losing everything else. That needs to be the disposition of the disciple's heart. And in that case, if that's your heart, then comes a promise. Jesus says, whatever you lose for my name's sake, you will receive many times as much and you will inherit eternal life. Now, I believe that Jesus has in mind here both a present and a future promise. One of the applications in the present is that when you come to Christ, you receive a new family. To trust and follow Jesus is to become now a brother or a sister with all other fellow believers, both locally and globally. And so when Jesus says you might lose father, mother, home, farm, things like that, you receive much more in return. Y'all, now, we see this. If you read through the book of Acts, we actually see the application of this promise in real time. How the believers, we see Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, they shared all things in common. No one considered any of their possessions as belonging only to themselves. It belonged to the church. They met each other's needs. They extended hospitality. They opened up their homes. They cared for widows and orphans as if they were their very own family because in a real sense, they were. Whatever the disciples lost in terms of wealth, possessions, reputation, status, homes, family, they gained far more. Literally, they did. They gained an entire world now, a family And it was a bond greater than blood or DNA. It was a bond shared by the Spirit of God. That was an answer to Jesus' promise. And of course, there's a future promise. It's, It's hard to miss. In verse 29, Jesus says, we will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Now, I want us to cross reference that phrase, inherit eternal life, with something the Apostle Peter tells us, one of my one of my very favorite scriptures in the Bible. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1, because in 1 Peter, Peter is writing to Christians who are suffering. They are suffering the loss of a great many things in order to follow Jesus. But Peter takes their suffering and he connects it to the hope of their promised inheritance. And listen to what he says, 1 Peter 1, verse 3, we'll put it on the screen. Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you 
who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We don't just go to heaven when we die, as if it were some wonderful spiritual retirement home for us. We inherit eternal life. We obtain, according to Peter, we obtain an inheritance which has been reserved by God for us, His children. Y'all, that means... And my words won't do it justice, but let me try. This means that every good and perfect and glorious and joyful and pleasurable thing that fills the heart of God will be lavished on us forever and ever. And it will never grow old or tiresome. This is what Peter's talking about, what Jesus says when He says inherit eternal life. This is a joy so rich, so wonderful, that it completely swallows up any of the trials or the suffering that make up this present world. And something else will happen, Peter says. For those who embrace the cost of following Christ, for those who endure our trials by faith, look at verse 7 with me again so that the proof of your faith, the evidence of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, praise and glory and honor, that's what we give to Jesus, right? Right. But that's not the context here. This is Jesus at His coming bestowing praise and glory and honor on us in accordance with our faithfulness. This is the reward. The many times as much. The inheriting of eternal life. This is what Jesus gives to those who trust Him and follow Him even through the cost. Isn't that amazing? Now let's look one more, real quickly. Let's look at how the Apostle Paul viewed this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. We know that Paul followed Jesus at great cost to himself. He suffered many things. He endured much for the sake of the gospel. Well, here Paul is now at the end of his life. He knows the end is near. And he's writing to Timothy. And listen to this affirmation. Paul says, 2 Timothy 4 verse 6, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Paul says the Lord will award him the crown of righteousness. So even as Paul suffers imprisonment and and impending death, he's anxiously, eagerly awaiting the day in which the Lord will recognize and reward him for the good fruit 
of his life that he lived for Jesus. Paul's not just saying, I'm going to go to heaven one day. He's saying, I will be awarded in that day. A crown. And it's not unique to Paul. You notice what he says. This crown belongs to all who have loved His appearing. Meaning, everyone who treasures Christ in this way, everyone who loves Jesus more than this life, will have the same honor and distinction to look forward to. We're going to sing this in a minute. I cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Now, is that a literal crown? I don't know. But it's whatever it is, it's worth waiting for. There is reward for those who love and treasure and follow Christ. Now, here's a critical question. We had to come to this question at some point. Should these rewards be our motivation in following Christ? And I'm going to give you both a yes and a no on this one this morning, okay? A yes and a no. I think on one hand, yes. When, y'all, when the Bible speaks of these things, it's partly to motivate us. When Jesus speaks of reward, I think there's a comfort that comes with that, a call to endurance, a hope that's meant to be uh, you know, uh, um, intensified, but also a motivation. Uh, when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3 about rewards, he says that the Lord will one day test our lives and reward us for our faithfulness and good works. And so, y'all, I, this, I just think this ought to be true of us, that if there's any honor and distinction that comes with living faithfully to Jesus, we should want it. We should aspire to that. But then the answer is also no. And I say no only because I know my own heart here. Y'all, we have to be so very careful that our desire for reward is not fixed on the reward itself. That's when things get really dangerous. There's always the threat that we might lose sight of God's grace in favor of our own works and our entitlement of what we think we deserve. And this warning is not, it's not just me. Jesus warned us about this right here in Matthew. In fact, right here in this very same text. We see it in the last verse of chapter 19, if you're still with me in Matthew 19, look down at the very end of the chapter. As Jesus now speaks of rewards for following Him, He very abruptly says something in verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now what does that mean? Well, He tells us what it means in the very next chapter. Now when Matthew was writing this gospel, he wasn't writing with chapter and verse breaks, believe it or not. Those were added in years later. Matthew is simply writing what comes next. And so ignore the chapter break with me and just look at the next verse, chapter 20, verse 1. It's a parable that Jesus illustrates what he just said. And y'all, this is an extended parable, but it's it's pretty self-explanatory. So I'm just going to read the whole thing. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Listen to Jesus' words here. He says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner, who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, a day's wage, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, 
I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. Can we say this without shame? Raise your hand if this parable kind of makes you mad. This parable is designed to ruffle our feathers. Jesus knows what he's doing. It's just not fair that the 11th hour workers, the guys who worked one hour, didn't even break a sweat, get the same wage as the people who worked all day long. It's not right. And also, it kind of seems to nullify what Jesus was just talking about when it comes to reward, doesn't it? I mean, is, is, does this parable mean that it, it doesn't really matter how you live, it all ends up the same in the end? Or even worse, you know what? You can live as bad as you want, as lazy as you want to be, as long as you swoop in at the last minute. You'll be just fine. Now, y'all, that all misses the point of the parable. Please don't take that away. Because that's not what Jesus is telling us. In fact, the focus of the parable is not really ultimately on us, the laborers, so much as the focus is on the landowner, who of course represents God. Notice again what the landowner says there in verse 15. He says, Is your eye envious because I am generous? He says to the grumblers, Are you jealous because I'm gracious? He's revealing their hearts just as much as he's revealing something about himself. And y'all, the point of this parable that we need to take to heart is this. If we enter into God's kingdom, we only enter in by grace, not by our works. And that's true across the board. It doesn't matter when you enter in or how. You only enter in through one gate, through one door. It's the door of grace, not of your own effort. And grace is a word that is my most favorite word in the English language. It's a word we share liberally every single Sunday when we gather because grace is the whole point of everything. Grace means unmerited, unearned favor. And that's the problem here. The all-day laborers view the 11th hour folks as getting more than what they deserve. And it makes them mad. 
just as it would us. See, this makes, makes sense in human terms, right? That if those guys got what was promised me, then at the very least I deserve more. Or at least they don't deserve what they got, but there's something amiss here. And y'all, in human terms, that's exactly how the, how the world operates. That's how life goes. We should all get exactly what we deserve. That's what's fair, but that's not how God operates. And if we're, if we're sincere about our understanding of the Scripture in our own hearts, nobody in this room would ever dare to ask God, please give me what I deserve. We should know better. And so this is the great threat for us. I hear that Jesus rewards those who faithfully follow Him. And my heart becomes fixated not on Jesus, but on the reward. The harder I work, the more I'll get. The more I do for God, the more God will owe me in return. And at that point, I've missed the gospel. I've missed the heart of God. I've missed the purpose of His grace. Y'all, the Lord has no debts. I want y'all to think about that. The Lord doesn't owe us anything. Paul says this in Romans 11. I mentioned this in the welcome. Who has first given to God that it might be paid back to Him again? Rhetorical question. The answer is no one. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Y'all know what that means? That means that in heaven, for all eternity, there will never be a single person occupying space in heaven, secretly grumbling under her breath or his breath saying, I deserve better than this. It simply won't happen. There's no such person. There's no such scenario. Because the only way we find ourselves in heaven, in the presence of God for eternity, is the acknowledgement that our salvation is entirely of grace. It's grace purchased and gifted to us by Jesus Christ who shed His own blood for us on the cross. We inherit eternal life. It's not a wage, it's a gift that we inherit by virtue of God making us His children purely from His own love and mercy and kindness. And y'all, even for those who work for the Lord, who live faithfully as Jesus calls who count the cost as Jesus implores us to do. Even for those of us who expect a reward as Jesus promised, even those, even those rewards will be received ultimately as God's gracious gifts. Not as an entitlement. Because all of our good fruit, everything we do that's good in the end, it only comes from our abiding in Christ to begin with. That's John 15. Paul preached that a couple of weeks ago. The only good that comes from me anyway comes because of the Lord, not from me. And so in the end, what do I have to feel entitled about? What do I have to be angry about if other people receive grace too? If they didn't live up to my standards? No, it's all grace from top to bottom, from beginning to end. And that's good news. You know, I want to close this, this morning with um, words from, from King David. King David who wrote Psalm 139, which we already read. David who speaks in 1 Chronicles 29. And he also says, what, really, a very 
a wonderful story. David is nearing death, and he's going to hand off the kingdom to Solomon, and Solomon's going to build the temple. And they've taken up a free will offering. As God lays it on each heart in Israel, they're going to offer for the sake of the construction of the temple. And Israel goes above and beyond. So much gold and silver and precious metals and fabrics. It was an embarrassment of riches, what was contributed by their own inclination, not by demand or coercion. They simply wanted to give, and they gave far and and above what was expected. And David turns in light of this great offering, and he prays to God. And listen to his prayer. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 14. David says to the Lord, he says, But who am I, and who are my people, that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. You see what David says? Any good thing we give to the Lord only comes from a prior and greater good we have received from the Lord. Any good thing, any act of faithfulness, any good work that we perform for the Lord, any generosity, anything at all, any sacrifice, it only comes from a prior and greater good that we first received from Him. Every good thing that you do in service to Christ is in grateful response to His sacrifice for you. That's the Christian life. And one day, y'all, Lord willing, when he says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. No one of us is going to say, well, it's about time. I got what I deserved. We'll say, just like David, Lord, I have given you Only what first came from your hand. Eternal life with all its inheritance and reward will not be to the praise of our works, but will forever be to the praise of His glory and His grace. And that will motivate us far more than any sense of entitlement. Let grace be the thing that drives us to Christ today. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that we would respond to the clear, I hope very clear, teaching of Your Word. That, Lord, it most certainly does matter how we live. That, Lord, You are... um, deeply invested in our present life and world, in our thoughts, in our decisions, in our words, in our actions, in our calendars, in our bank accounts, in our public life and our private life. Father, you care about every detail. And Lord, I think the promise is clear that to those who love you and treasure you more than life, then anything we might lose, we receive much more and inherit eternal life. Father, I pray that we would be very sober-minded 
that how we live today has an eternal significance. It matters. And that, Lord, that would not, uh, I mean, perhaps for some of us, there there is a, a tinge of fear that might accompany that. Because we know, Lord, that perhaps we are being complacent or selfish. We are not counting the cost. And we need to look to Christ and fix our eyes on Him and set aside all the the encumbrances and entanglements and weights and sins, Lord, that keep us from living for Christ. But I pray, Lord, that for us it would be a joy to consider it. That any good fruit that you produce in our lives by faith, Father, that you count it. It's treasure in heaven. And it should be our joy to consider, Lord, that there's a crown of righteousness awarded to those who love you and eagerly await your return. That's exciting. I pray, Lord, that we would, in in an appropriate way, that we would long for what we've read about this morning, what Peter and Paul say, what Jesus said. But I pray, Lord, also you protect us and guard our hearts from what we're prone to do which is to think about me and what I deserve or what I could get and to lose sight of grace. Lord, let Jesus Christ be our sole aspiration here. Not any reward from His hand, precious as that may be, but Him, Jesus Himself. To love Him, to know Him, to follow Him, Lord, to enjoy Him, to to lose for Him, Gladly, if it means gaining Him in return. Lord, that we would be just enamored with Jesus. And any good thing, Lord, that You promise to us in the end, that we would receive it as as a gift, not, not as a wage. Not as what we deserve, but Lord, as the goodness of Your grace poured out. Father, I I pray this morning that you just bring a, I pray, a note of encouragement to us who feel like the the losses that we have counted up for your sake, the hardships that we have endured and are enduring for your sake, nobody sees. And we wonder, Lord, if it's worth it. We wonder, Lord, if if, if it's worth enduring. Would you remind us of the awesome promise of the Scripture from Jesus to Peter to Paul that, Lord, every single moment lived for you is worth an eternity in the end. Lord, we we will be with you forever enjoying your grace, celebrating your kindness. And And our momentary light afflictions are not worth being compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Father, help us to endure. Help us to know that you see and you reward. We love you, Father, and we thank you that any good thing we might do today is simply in response to your prior goodness, your greater goodness poured out on us. So let grace be what drives us each and every moment. In Christ's name, amen.